Good afternoon, everyone. Great to see you all here. If you're new here, you've caught yourself in the middle of a series. And it's called the Decalogue. That's the fancy way for talking about the Ten Commandments. It's the ten words or ten sayings that God gave to his people after he rescued them out of a land of bondage and slavery, brought them into a new land, wanting to give them a code of conduct that helps them experience life and freedom. And so we're on commandment number seven today, and it's in Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. So we're just, we just keep going. I mean, every week, last week was murder, this week is adultery. It's just a fun-loving time together. Uh, um, and today we're going to have, a, I mean, just, we're going to have some content. So kind of settle in, but I, I trust that this will be life-giving for you, beneficial. So if the sixth commandment last week talked about the sanctity of life, this time we're talking about the sanctity of the family. The, not just marriages, but families, and how God feels about families, and how God wants to protect families to be life-giving, to be flourishing, to be beneficial for all concerned. How, what is the primary thing that God cares about for the health of a family? Well, it's simply fidelity or faithful love between the husband and the wife. Faithful love is a super big deal in all of life, particularly in the family. When we look at the divorce rate um, in the States, I'm sure we're much better because we're Canadians, but in the States, the, the people down there, uh, the 60% uh, of all divorces are because of infidelity. So it's still a big deal. I don't know if any of you uh, know the name, I think you'd be familiar with the name Billy Graham. He's one of the greatest evangelists of all time. His wife's name was Ruth. And one time she was asked, um, you know, would you ever, have you ever been tempted to divorce your husband, Billy Graham? Have you ever been tempted to divorce him? He goes, she says, divorce, no. She says, murder. And that was her, that was her response, so. Let's not go there today. <laughs> what we want to be able to do is to understand what does this faithful love mean? When, when God talks about faithful love, particularly in the context of marriage, what does this faithful love mean? Well, there are, and it's very notable, that there's one uh, sentence that is repeated in Genesis chapter 2, which is always a big deal, if anything's mentioned in the first three chapters of the Bible, it's a big deal, then Jesus echoes that same sentence, and then Paul says the same thing later on in Ephesians. And it's this sentence. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That is a description of what marriage is, and it's an understanding of what fidelity or faithful love is all about. What we're going to do is go through each one of those phrases, one flesh, united, leave. We're going to look at those kind of in reverse order, and then we're going to look at what breaks that covenant, and then how we can build that covenant. So let's look, first of all, at this mandate of faithful love as recorded in Genesis chapter 2. The first thing that we find here 
or rather it's the third, but we're going to look at it first, is the two shall become one flesh. Now, if I was writing the Bible, which you should all be grateful that I, I'm not, but if I was, I would say, and the two will become one heart. Ah, oh, I know. I know. You get me. It's, uh, it's Valentine's is you have hearts. And when you, when you talk about a marriage, you talk about, you know, just being together in, in one heart and one mind. Now, what's fascinating is the Bible doesn't say that. It goes on to say, we'll get to that, the, the next phrase in a moment, but here it says the two will be one flesh. What's interesting about this is that there is only one relationship. Imagine all the relationships that you're going to have through the course of your life. You're going to meet hundreds, if not thousands of people, and there is to be potentially one person out of all of those relationships that has sex be a part of that relationship. Every other relationship does not include sex. In fact, it's being for forbidden. That is very, very interesting. When you think about what's unique about a marriage, that is the one thing that the Bible highlights as being distinctive. We can have other relationships in which there's deep communication, walking together, perhaps for a, for a lifetime of uh, a lifetime journey. There can be lots of other different qualities, but the one thing is to only have experience uh, uh, sex inside of marriage. More than one person would be considered unfaithful. The whole point is faithfulness. And, and so the Bible's saying the primary act of faithful love is reserving physical intimacy for being inside of marriage. If you don't do that, you've been unfaithful. Even if you're single, you are being unfaithful to a marital covenant even though you're not in it. You're not honoring what marriage is supposed to honor. Another word would be to be unholy. Holiness is to be separate, to be distinct. There's one thing and it's physical intimacy that is to be distinct about the marriage covenant. When you think about a diamond, what makes a diamond more uh, special than a, a tree or something? Well, it's rare. It's, it, it, it's not common. And so uh, human sexuality becomes holy and pure and glorious when it becomes uncommon. What a fascinating thought. Now, out of that one flesh intimacy comes fruitfulness. The very thing that you get produced undermines the first part, but it's, uh, it's fruitfulness. Genesis 1.28 says that the whole reason for our existence is to be fruitful and multiply and to rule the earth. That's given to both men and women, this call to fruitfulness and to, and to ruling all of creation. What this already does, this one flesh statement, it already defines what's unique about a marriage and also what the purpose of marriage is. And it really is procreation. 
It's the flourishing of life, whether that's natural children or spiritual children, that there's something in the very essence of humanity that demands that, we, that the love that we share is a flourishing love, not a, a self-centered love, not a self-focused love, but a love that multiplies itself through the generations. We'll be talking more about this later. Earlier on in the, in, the, uh, in the series, we talked about this idea of Trinitarian love, that, that the God of Christianity is one God in three persons. It's an interesting thought, especially when we think of marriage, that the most intimate of relationships that we can imagine would be a relationship between two. Kind of makes sense. Yet, Trinitarian love is a triad. There's three. Why is that? Why wouldn't God say, just look, the two of you are getting along so well together, let's just keep it as it is, use birth control, that's really helpful, and just be the two of you forever. Here's the problem with a dyad instead of a triad, is it becomes idolatrous. And the marriage just serves itself, nothing beyond itself, and it becomes egocentric. There's a temptation inside of marriage to just make it about a you and a me, which is really kind of just about a me. And again, quoting the great prophet Jerry Maguire, you, you know, or actually, I forget her name, so you complete me, um, is wrong. It's just a wrong thing. That what is ultimately fulfilling, get this now, what is ultimately fulfilling is a mother, father, and child, not just a husband and a wife into the very fabric of what a marriage is to be, there it, it is assumed that it's going to be a, a, a procreative relationship that moves outside of itself. It's not a self-serving relationship. So that's one flesh. Then it says earlier in the verse, be united to his wife. This idea of being united is a word that's simply used for covenant. And here's what a covenant is. To adjoin in a permanent way. To adjoin in a permanent way. As I've told you before, I used to be a shop teacher, so I took courses on, um, on metalwork and woodwork and drafting and all those kinds of things. And so I've done some welding uh, quite poorly. I've set my hair on fire more than once. Um, <laughs> Anyways, that's another story. But the, the idea of a covenant is the welding of two pieces of metal together. They're inseparable. The relationship between a husband and a wife is a welded bonding. They're inseparable and it's permanent. You can't pull apart two pieces of metal that have been welded together. And this joining of two lives, which is a very sacred thought when you think about it, very holy, this joining of two lives is to be holistic. The focus is on one flesh, but it actually, uh, to be one in that sense implies that you're being one in every other sense. That it, we are to be welded with our hearts. This is not an emotionally distant or functional relationship. It's a relationship that, uh, that involves our emotions, our longings, our dreams, our fears, and sharing that with another person. Incredibly sacred. It's a holy place. It involves finances. Every area of life, it involves finances. Uh, 
think about, and I'm, I don't know you, so this is not um, personal, but there are some, some marriages where the finances are kept separately. Uh, that's not a full joining. I hate to break it to you. But uh, the motivation would be, we'll just keep this separate just in case things go sideways. I, I want to make sure I have a, bit of a, have a bit of a cushion just in case. It's not you, it's me, but just in case. It includes plans. It includes a common life direction. It's not, I'm going to support you in your endeavors, you support me hopefully in my endeavors. Hopefully it'll kind of all work itself out. No, we're actually giving up individualistic endeavors for a common endeavor. We're going to live a life together, building something together that hopefully would honor the name of Jesus. This is much different than cohabitation. This is an entirely different experience. Nothing is being bonded or welded together in a common law relationship. It is a relationship, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's a relationship of convenience. I would like partnership. I would like physical intimacy, but I don't really want the covenant. And so it's a way to get the benefits of two without the cost or without the commitment. But that covenant, that commitment makes all the difference. I don't know when the last time I've told this story, but I've told it now and then. Uh, I used to go around when I was younger. They don't ask me anymore. I think that they think I'm irrelevant now when it comes to these topics. But um, I used to do a, a seminar, traveled around North America and, and other places. And it was the name of the seminar, unfortunate, was uh, Love, Sex, and Relationships with Dr. Greg Mitchell. So uh, that wasn't great. But uh, I would go around and talk on this topic of love, sex, and relationships. And I remember I was in Montreal giving, a, uh, giving this talk. And uh, after I do my little talk, and we do some research stuff, and it's quite fun, I always have a Q&A, and that's my favorite part, because it's just more, you know, lively. And there was this one cool dude in the very back. And you can always spot the cool dude, you know, kind of slouched and hair. He thought about it. And, uh, you know, stuff like that. And so he's, uh, he's in the back, and, uh, and he puts up his hand, and he says, uh, he says, I don't need a piece of paper called a marriage license. I don't need a piece of paper to show that I've, you know, that I'm committed, you know, to my girlfriend. And I go, okay, that's great. So I'm just curious, how long have you been going out? He goes, two weeks. I go, whoa, you know, you're almost there. <laughs> you know, it's uh, well done. That's amazing. He goes, so, so, I, so you don't need a piece of paper. He goes, I don't need a piece of paper. I'm committed in my heart. That's special. And so, I says, so he says, that piece of paper doesn't, he goes, no, a piece of paper doesn't matter. I go, great. Well, I'm a licensed minister. So uh, why don't you just call up your girlfriend and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just marry you right now. The piece of paper doesn't mean anything. So let's just do the marriage thing right now. He goes, wow. I don't, really, I don't really want to do that. I go, I thought it didn't mean anything. It really means something. When something is signed, when a commitment is made, it dramatically changes the relationship. I've talked to many people who once lived common law and then got married, and they said, I am surprised at the difference. Because there is a allowed, created, a level of vulnerability 
uh, or sorry, a level of commitment that can allow there to be a greater level of vulnerability. We're not going to talk to our stranger about our deepest needs and longings. But if there's a place that's safe, where we know that it's, gonna, it's permanent, it's going to last a lifetime, that creates a different experience of intimacy. And it's what being united is all about. And the final um, descriptor is a man. Interesting that it's a man, as if a man has greater issues with this, but we'll get there. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become flesh. So this leaving idea, what does this mean? Now, the way that it typically gets taught is that we're leaving past loyalties and we're making commitment to our spouse and future children. There's truth to that. What's interesting about it, and we've, we've gone to, uh, uh, well, remembering Galilee in particular, we looked at the houses that were built during the time that this was written. And the way that these houses were built is that uh, they basically took up a, the equivalent of a city block, but a very small block. Because the, the, the roads were on the outside and they were dangerous. There's chariots and horses and you didn't want kids playing in the streets. And so there would be a house that's a square with a courtyard in the middle. That's where Jesus healed the paralytic that was brought down. There's a courtyard in the middle. That's where the kids would play. That's where life would kind of occur inside of that family. Now, if a uh, son got married, the idea was that then that son would bring his bride to come and live with the, the parents of the groom, they all get to live together in a house. Doesn't that sound great? We would never do that. That's why we built a laneway house <laughs> instead in earth. But um, anyways, so, uh, so the, the idea is, is that you actually, um, uh, you move in with your, with your family. So uh, this idea of leaving was not geographic you actually stayed with the parents of the groom. It means something different. And this is what I would like to suggest to you. Leaving meant that you were a, you were a child in a family. And now you're becoming a man. And what becoming a man means is now you're going to take what we instilled in you and you're now gonna build a family and you're going to build that family in such a way that you're making a, a future for the next generation. And the idea of leaving is not so much abandoning. It's that idea that we talked about earlier is about taking the baton, owning it yourself, and now building a family that you're responsible for. And then raising them in such a way that they then will be responsible. And now we see this idea of a lineage being created, of a baton being passed on from generation to generation. So the idea of leaving then is you can't just stay as a child. You have to grow up and take responsibility for your family. This is very powerful. And it shapes what we understand uh, the responsibility of marriages to be about. It's much easier to say, well, leaving just means we get our own apartment. Well, that's, that's easy. Well, I mean, it's not that easy in Vancouver, but generally it's that easy. It's easier that you just, you just live on your own. Well, that's independence. That misses the whole point of what a family is to be about. 
I'm trying to build on the past, not abandon the past. And I'm doing that in order to build a future for my children. This is the context of family. Now, look at this. This faithful love, this is, I think, what we all long for. We long to be in a place of, uh, of intimacy, a place of unity, a place that has meaning and purpose, a place that isn't just about ourselves, but does something greater than ourselves. I think our hearts, being made in the image of God, long to experience faithful love. And there's one thing that undermines this experience, and it's adultery, infidelity. So let's look at this in particular then. What breaks this covenant? Well, Matthew 5, this is Jesus speaking, describes exactly what it is. He says, if you, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this verse has caused great paranoia and guilt for, <laughs> for tons of people. Because the idea, how, how, at first glance, says that if I think that a woman is attractive, I've just committed adultery. That's not what this is talking about. The idea is that I'm looking at a woman in such a way as wanting to have sex with her. So even before the actual act, I've already committed it in my heart. I've already seen that person in a lustful way, not just thinking that they're attractive, but wanting to possess and, and uh, control them for my own personal self-gratification. Lust is evil desires. Now here's what's interesting, to me at least, about this word lust. Lust is a feeling. It's just a feeling. And what I find remarkable throughout all the ages, but dare I say particularly in our generation, is how much we have exalted the idea of a feeling. And then if we're ever untrue to our feelings, it feels as though we've, we've betrayed ourselves. That feeling seems to trump nearly every other obligation. I'm only faithful to one thing. It's not another person. It's not God. It's my feelings. Very, very sobering. What are these feelings based on? Lust, I believe, is simply this. Ingratitude. It's just ingratitude. It says, what I have is not good enough. Who I have is not good enough. I need a better experience. I need a better feeling. And what you've given me, I find to be inadequate and not a sufficient feeling for me to feel self-fulfilled. Where that ingratitude ultimately leads is betrayal. When we exalt a feeling above a covenant, we betray the people around us. 
don't you, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'd, I'd love to be with you and I appreciate all the sacrifices over the years. But anyways, I have feelings and I can't betray those feelings. And so I have to betray you instead. This is a shocking thought. That is a, is, it is a violation to the very heart of God and human uh, design and integrity. God made us to be a faithful people. And when we exalt our feelings above faithfulness, everything gets destroyed. First Thessalonians 4 says it this way. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Remember that diamond? There should be something precious about you. Don't think that everything that you do is common. You should be sanctified, made pure and holy. That you should avoid sexual immorality. We're going to explain what that means in a minute. You should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy. There's that word again. Holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Passionate lust. Exalting feelings above other people. It makes people simply resources for self-gratification. It's horrible. What then is this idea of sexual immorality? You hear it talked about in churches and uh, scorned upon. What's going on? Well, the first thing that we need to do is define it, and it's simply this. Sexual immorality is all sex outside of the marriage covenant of one man and one woman permanently bonded. It is all sex outside of that marriage covenant. That's what it means. It's immoral. It is not, it is using something in the wrong way. It's using physical intimacy for something other than what it was intended for. Not self-gratification, not self-fulfillment. There's a bigger thing going on that's much more profound, much more holy, much more satisfying than setting that act outside of marriage. I would like to look at the two primary ways that sexual immorality is expressed. We'll look at heterosexuality and homosexuality. Let's look first at heterosexuality, with which far and away is the greatest problem um, that we experience in this area. Follow me now on this. <clears throat> If you're going to get married, you must forsake heterosexuality. Here's what heterosexuality means. It means a desire uh, to have sex with the opposite sex. You have to give that up. There's no, you have to give up the desire to have sex with the opposite sex, to have sex with one person your husband or wife. You have to give that up. Don't imagine that uh, uh, being married to the opposite sex cures your heterosexual lust. It does not. I know this. As I talked to, uh, to men who are addicted to pornography, you would think, why would you look at an image when you have a real person? They never gave up heterosexuality. They never gave up the idea of sex and made it about a covenant with a person. They couldn't, they couldn't go there. They didn't forsake 
their heterosexuality. This, of course, and perhaps um, is the secret sin inside of the church would be pornography. And pornography is simply looking at, at what we've said thus far. Pornography is an act of unfaithfulness. It's an act of imagining having multiple sexual partners. And you are breeding inside of your own heart unfaithfulness. We, we simply can't restrict this to talking about human urges because we're saying that urges are not, uh, don't need, lust, the word lust doesn't have to be inherently bad. We can lust after God. In the Bible, however, it's always termed negatively in that feelings must serve something greater than themselves for them to be sanctified. And what they serve greater than themselves is another person either in marriage or ultimately we'll discover in a moment in God. What's disturbing then is that we have, and if I can, uh, just because I'm male, so I'll, I'll pick on males, that, um, that uh, we can treat our wife with lust. That it becomes wanting a physical release because a man has urges and forsakes the dignity and holiness of the one that God gave us in holy matrimony. And somehow we feel as though it's legal because it's inside of marriage, but our heart is full of lust. Not about the other person at all, but about what I think I need. It is no wonder that the primary struggle that women will have in marriage is a suspicion of the motives of their husbands. What is this really about? Is this about us or is it about you? And that challenge gets to the very core of mistrust inside of a marriage. We need to repent of a desire for sex with the opposite sex to a covenant commitment to give ourselves to one other. What we also see in scripture, which is much less of an issue, even though you wouldn't think so in our society, but numerically speaking, much less of an issue would be the idea, would be the act of homosexuality which is descri described as a lust in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. I'd like to make some comments on this, and you can understand how uh, volatile this topic is in this time. That not just churches, but entire denominations right now are being split over this exact issue. And the argument is quite simple. Love is love, and just so long as I'm genuine, my feelings are genuine, that it doesn't matter whether my feelings are toward the same sex or the opposite sex, I should have the right to be able to express those feelings. So point number one is simply this. Something more than our feelings need to define our sexuality. 
something more profound than a feeling. And the thing that is more profound than a feeling is a covenant that God has reserved for one man and one woman. My feelings, as, as genuinely as I experience them, are ultimately untrustworthy. Now, here's where I think the church has become uh, judgmental, and, I, I, and so we need to address this. When we look at, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Four Loves, and he's using the idea that in Greek there's more, but he, he chose there's four kinds of, of love that are the Greek words for love. Um, storge is love that a uh, parents have toward a child, or child to, it's a child toward parents, it's a familial love. Um, eros is a sexual love. Phileo is a love that is a love of a brotherhood. It's, a, it's, a, it's, the, it's that koinonia that we've talked about. It's the bonding of hearts to one another that is not sexual. And then there's agape love, which is the love that God shows towards us. It's the greatest love. Now, here's what's interesting about those four words. There's other words. One has to do with self-love and... There's other words, but these are the four that he, he emphasizes. Now, what's interesting about this is out of those four words, only two are mentioned in the Bible. I don't know if you want to hedge a guess on what they are. But the two is agape and phileo, not eros, not storge. Fascinating. In Ephesians 5, when it says that a man, uh, a husband, should love his wife, the word love there is agape love. It's a self-sacrificing love. That is the You're not to have an eros love. You're to have an agape love towards your wife. Well, that's different. Profoundly different. Now, here's where it gets interesting in regard to homosexuality. Homosexuality is two people of the same sex wanting to connect. Authors say that, including C.S. Lewis, that one of the most tragic um, experiences in our era is the lack of phileo love in our society. And what we have done is we've taken any moment of, of male bonding or female bonding and we've made it eros and destroyed phileo. And this is tragic because there are some relationships that are best experienced. 99% of all relationships are best experienced without eros. And what gets undermined is the ability of men to walk with men and women to walk with women and not to have it be undermined, dare I say, undermined by homosexuality. God is not trying to uh, restrict or condemn 
or belittle those desires. He's trying to fulfill those desires. There's one desire for one woman. I want to fulfill that. I don't want to fulfill your heterosexuality. I want to fulfill a marriage covenant by being for one man and one woman. And I want to give you an experience of love that stretches beyond that, that is about community, that is about walking together side by side, doing something for the kingdom of God, walking together in covenant loyalty that would be undermined were it sexualized. And so what do we find inside of, uh, of gay sex is the, uh, is the betrayal and the lessening of masculinity and femininity. Not to be too graphic, but somebody has to be in any given moment, the boy and someone else has to be the girl. And we become emasculated instead of walking into a destiny of masculinity and femininity that God longs to give to all of his children. A great gift, a holy gift. One not to be desecrated with eros. I think the, um, I think that the rise of homosexuality is an indictment against the church. It has been my experience, and it's only my experience, so you can have another experience. This is my experience. Is that the church has idolized marriage. And if you're not married, you're less than. And the experience of a community like this, if you're single, is more difficult. Because I think the church has struggled to understand what phileo means in this community. And so we're left with having to eros because there's something that we should be experiencing here that is life-giving and satisfying. And a marriage cannot be a replacement for this. Do you know that? Do you know that? A marriage can't replace this. This, what you and I together here, this is eternal and a, mar a marriage is not. This is eternal. We are the bride of Christ. We will be living together for eternity, God help us. Uh, all together with the groom, Jesus. This is the eternal relationship. And we've settled for something that is less than. Not to say that marriage shouldn't be valued as holy. It is. But it's not everything. And there needs to be an experience of covenant community that satisfies the longings of men and women in the church. And this would be a tremendous gift for married and unmarried. The level of expectation that is put on marriages today is thoroughly unrealistic. Thoroughly. Complete me. Really? Really. You only think that before you're married. complete. All right. God bless you. Have a go. I mean, maybe there's someone out there that I've not met yet that's for you and it's going to be great. So what breaks, the, uh, what breaks the marriage covenant is simply exalting a feeling, whether it's a heterosexual feeling, a homosexual feeling, whatever it is, it's a, it's a lustful feeling that somehow puts itself above faithful love as God defines it. 
So how can we be faithful? Well, it's by faith in God instead of faith in our feelings. I don't know about you, but I have lots of faith in my feelings. I really believe in them. And they somehow, sometimes they feel more true than truth. I exalt them above what God says is true. I go, no, 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 these are my feelings and my feelings are genuine. Well, yes, they're genuine, but they might be genuinely wrong. And we need to factor this in. So let's look then at singles and marrieds in this regard, and then we'll conclude. How do we have faith in God instead of our feelings? Looking first at singles. It's this, to trust that singleness is a gift. To not be ungrateful, but to trust instead that my singleness is a good gift. 1 Corinthians 7 is all about this. If you want to read more, please read 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, it's a powerful passage. Here's one of the verses, verse 34. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. That what scripture is very clear in saying is that there's something far more profound than human marriage. And it's us being devoted to the Lord Jesus. Can I say far more satisfying? You want to be wed to the, to the ultimate spouse? His name is Jesus Christ. And there's no one who competes with him. And what singleness is an opportunity for is to, be, uh, is to work through our devotion to him. I am tremendously suspect of single people who want to get married who haven't worked out their devotion to Jesus first. Because when you go into marriage, you're going to have a level of expectation that your marriage cannot handle and it will crumble under that weight. The first responsibility of all humanity is to work out their first covenant with Jesus Christ and to be wed to him and him alone. C.S. Lewis says this, get this. I mean, this is just a faith statement. The most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. I'm going to get an amen on that, but... You know, it's like, it's just. This is what see I was talking to an old friend yesterday. And he says, I've been talking to my brother who is an atheist. And uh, he's been a staunch atheist all of his life. And he's getting on in years. And his brother is now saying, I, I believe 3%. I'm not, in, I'm not, I'm 3% not an atheist. You know, I believe in God, 3%. And then this friend of mine, who is a very, very devout Christian, very devout, that's given his whole life to God, he says, I'm about 3% too. <laughs> really, aren't we? Come on now. Aren't we just about 3%? We may have got some rock stars out there, you're at five. <laughs> like, isn't that true about us? Like, we're just... Barely understanding the beauty and glory of God. Barely scraping the surface. We know this is true because we're so fickle in our devotion to him. If we ever saw him for who he is, oh my. We're about three to five. 
still thinking that milk and water is as good as it gets. Paul goes on in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians to say this in the next verse. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. There's no guilt in this. If you want to get married, get married. It's not to restrict you. He says, I'm trying to paint a picture of something glorious. Would you let me? Would you let me paint a picture of something that will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul? This must be true on one one fact. Jesus Christ was not married. Was Jesus, as he walked this earth, was he perfectly fulfilled in his humanity? Please say yes. Perfectly fulfilled. Perfectly fulfilled. And if we don't understand that, was Paul not I think he did okay in life, not married. God does this not to restrict us, but to introduce us to something more glorious. Oh, Father, help us. Uh, there was a, uh, a, a doctor that I visited, a specialist. And uh, he's a doctor, and so he was doing okay for himself well-established, really nice guy. And, I, uh, and we, would, we would get together and, and talk. And he would say to me, Greg, he says, I don't want to get married. I think he was in his late 50s at this point. He says, I don't want to get married. I go, why not? He says, uh, I don't want to spend the rest of my life um, meeting another person's needs um, that is just about them. Well, that, first of all, that's incredibly sad, as if you think that's what marriage is. <clears throat> but he was pointing to something. He was a devout Jew. He says, there's something more glorious going on here than this. I pray that Christians would grab hold of something even more profound. Uh, G.K. Chesterton is always cheeky, and this is one of the things that he says, and I think it's tremendously profound. He says, everyone who knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. Isn't that a profound statement? Click, there you go. Everyone who knocks at the door of a brothel where you find prostitutes, they're actually looking for God. And the most that they can imagine is a, is a, is a sexual experience, but what their heart is longing for is the comfort and connection and life that is only found in God. I read books about these things a lot. And they say that there's a difference between a desire for sex and a sexual desire. Hard to understand. God's, uh, they say that God, we were, that sex isn't about a desire for sex. A, a sexual desire is a longing for connection a longing to be known and embraced and to be one. And that's what God wants to fulfill in all of humanity. It's what we really want. And a sexual moment might be an expression of that in its right context, but it is never the fulfillment of that. The fulfillment of that is always found in our relationship with God and his church. Now you can see, you know, why we, 
you know, it just feels so inadequate. We say, hey, could you guys join a D group or a community? And we go, you know, I guess that's what this church is into. And it's like, oh, that we could understand what we're being called into. We're being called into covenant. We're being, this isn't, a, this isn't a resource. This church is not a resource for your self-development. It's a community of faith. And we're trying to understand what does it mean to be a people together that worships Jesus together and finds fulfillment in him together. What a profound task we've been given. Now, I understand if God calls you to another place, no problem, no problem at all. But let it be to another community and not just off into nothingness. The church is the bride of Christ and we are being prepared to be wed to him. And marriage only ever serves as a reflection of that. So as you find yourself in a place of being single, you are not in an airport waiting for your flight to, you know, somewhere exotic called marriage. You're not, you're not waiting. And please, don't use your single years. If they last for a few years or your whole life, don't use, your, use up your single years waiting. That would be a waste of time. It's a gift that we receive by faith. And it's a glorious gift. It's not a second-rate gift. Let's look at the other gift called marriage. Proverbs 5.18, I'll be shorter on this. Proverbs 5.18 says this, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Meaning rejoice in your, in your wife. Not in anybody else's wife, not in any other woman. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be satisfied with her. Here's the key, I mean, as if there is such, anyways. Here's the key to marital faithfulness and marital joy is to trust that your spouse is God's gift. It's that simple. Is to be able to look at your spouse and say, God's gift, perfect gift, the right gift, the only gift that I'll never ever need. I'm done, that's the right one, thank you. I don't need to go after anybody else, not what someone else looks like, not what their personality is like, not what their uh, interests are like, She's, he's perfect for me. Debbie is perfect for me. She's perfect. She's perfect in her flaws. I have more of them, so I'm more perfect than you in flaws. But uh, she's perfect in her flaws because her flaws lead me to remember what this is all about. She's not God, and she never needs to be. She doesn't need to be. And she's perfect in her perfections. I am loved by her in the most remarkable of ways. It overwhelms me thinking about it. I don't deserve to be loved by another human being that way. I don't deserve it. I know I don't. Do I get an amen from Debbie? <laughs> I don't deserve it. <clears throat> but I receive that also as a gift, that she is a channel from God it's not her, it's Christ in her that blesses me. Either way, I win. Imperfection or perfection. If I see my spouse as a gift from God, I can't lose. 
because I'm always grateful, and that's the opposite of lust. I'm free from it. You're following me now, and I'm able to stay faithful. The moment that you resent your singleness, the moment that you resent your spouse, is the moment that you become ungrateful, the moment that you become a covenant breaker, first with God and then with others. In conclusion, the Ten Commandments are described as promises, not just actions of what we should do, but promises about what God wants to give us. So when he says, have no other gods before me, he says, can I be your God? Let me be your God. There's nobody else. Every other God is a defeated God. I am the only God who's victorious. I'm the only God motivated by love. Let me be your God. And I promise fulfillment. God says, don't commit adultery because I'm wanting to give you life. And life is found in faithfulness to me and to one spouse. Can you trust me that I'm trying to fulfill you, not restrict you? Can you trust that to be true? So let me ask you in closing some questions. Do you practice faithfulness as a way of life? Is faithfulness how you roll? Is faithfulness what you value? Do you value being faithful here? Do you value being faithful at work? Do you value being faithful to God? Is it a value of yours? That is a rare value these days, simply because we've exalted feelings so much that we've stopped being faithful. Oh, that we would be a faithful people. Oh, it's such a big deal. Are you grateful? Are you lustful or are you grateful? Gratitude has nothing to do with the perfection of those who you're around. It has nothing to do with that. It's the ability to see Jesus in a moment. Can you forgive the betrayal that has happened to you? I am sure that for most of us here, we have been betrayed in trying to be faithful. Can you forgive? Betrayal, there's no greater crime in humanity than betrayal. And some of us here have opened up our hearts only to be stepped on. And those are incredibly painful places. Can we be faithful to God by choosing to love others the way that he has loved us? And finally, is your vision multi-generational? Can I please tell you, um, the only thing that keeps me full of hope with my life is a multi-generational view of my life. I look, at, I look at my life and it's so small, so temporal, so inadequate and flawed. It's just overwhelming, really. And the only thing that keeps me sane is that I'm a part of a chain. I'm a baton. And there's people that I want to honor in my past who have built into me. I'll be forever grateful. I say their names just because I'm, I'm so grateful. And then I want to be one who, who can propel. I mean, I, I tell my kids all the time, 
every landmark that they've had in their life was before I had mine of that same issue, you know? They're just better than me. They're just all better. I have to be okay with it. I actually enjoy being okay with that. Except in mountain biking. It's really discouraging, but anyways. So can I be, can I be okay with just being a stepping stone for the next generation? If you and I get a multi-generational vision for our lives, our marriages will be satisfying, our church will be satisfying, our jobs will be satisfying. Our, it'll, it'll radically change who you see yourself as being and what a valuable life is really about. It's a generational vision. That's the biblical vision. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Not just one, but a, but a lineage. What a glorious life to pave the way for the next generation. And that we would be able to do that together as a church is no greater, there is no greater privilege. Let's be a church that builds a future for the city and for the nations. Now we've done something worthwhile with our lives. If we can have the worship team come up, we're going to be having a communion today. Well, there is no greater statement of fidelity and faithful love than uh, than communion, than being able to say, as you have given yourself to me without reservation, I give myself to you. I receive you and I won't trample on the gifts that you've given me, that I will be faithful with those gifts by being grateful and being generous. So let's stand together. I'd like to pray for us and then we'll worship for a moment as the elements are passed out. Hold on to those elements and we'll, uh, we'll do it all together. Father, I thank you for your faithful love. And you have no subtext. All you're wanting is for us to experience and walk in faithful love. There's nothing else going on. And so God, I ask on behalf of my friends that this is the, the primary characteristic of our lives that we would be faithful in our love, first toward you and then toward others, and that we would not betray faithfulness with eros, with lustful feelings that would steal away our integrity. Let us be honorable, holy, sanctified, fully devoted, because we are ones who know you.